I want to encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 3. Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 3. For the last several weeks, the Lord has been speaking to us about our hearts. About a month ago, I came and talked to you about people who have a burning heart. We looked at the disciples on the road to Emmaus and how their hearts were changed when Jesus came close and opened up the Scriptures to them. After that, we looked at a man named Josiah, king, and how Josiah's heart was tender when he heard the word of the Lord and how he embraced the truth and he kept his heart tender. And we saw that it is important that when you and I hear God speaking, that we receive what he is saying in order that our heart would stay tender and not grow hard. One of the great dangers you and I can face, even as believers, is that our heart would not be tender, but our heart would be hard to the Lord and His voice. We then looked at what it takes to keep the fire burning in the heart. We looked at the life of the young rich ruler and how self dominated him to such an extent that he could not receive the Lord, could not follow the Lord. And even as believers, we do battle with selfish desires. The Bible calls it the flesh. And unless we recognize the truth that our flesh has been crucified with Christ, we will cave. And that flesh will extinguish the fire in our heart. And then last week, we talked about people who have opened their hearts to the purpose of a living God starting in the Old Testament, Genesis, all the way through the New Testament, we saw how God's purpose has always been the same, that the invisible, all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing God would make himself known to the world through us, through us. And he would then, in that way, make himself visible. Today, I want us to talk about a heart that belongs to him, a heart that belongs to to him. In Daniel chapter 3, we have a story of three young men, a well-known story, and we typically treat it in children's Bible study classes. We'll, uh, we'll tell this story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's such a story that can be so familiar to us that we can miss the truth about these men and the lessons they have to teach you and me. And so we're talking about a heart that belongs to him. I want to call your attention to verse 1 of chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. That's about 90 feet. Nine-story building. And it's width six cubits or nine feet. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
So, and he repeats the list. That's significant. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurer, judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You get the idea that Nebuchadnezzar had set it up? Verse 4. Then a herald cried out aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This story about these three young men includes another young man named Daniel who wrote the book of Daniel. Comes after a long and very torrid history of Israel and Judah divided kingdoms that had both fallen into idolatry and spiritually had been unfaithful to the God who had established them and set them in the promised land. God had blessed them. They called for a king, and they had King Saul. There was King David, a man after God's own heart. There was King Solomon, who much of his life expressed the presence of God through his rule, but who failed miserably at the end of his life. And the kingdom was divided after Solomon. And these people who were to be God's own special people became unfaithful to him again and again and again and again. And we see that in the leadership, the kings of Judah and Israel. Israel was so wicked that relatively quickly compared to Judah, God raised up an oppressive nation that ultimately by 722 B.C., the end of the 8th century, B.C., they were gone. The northern kingdom was destroyed. The southern kingdom continued, and there would be an evil king and an evil king and an evil king, and occasionally a king that somehow got a little bit of truth. And we came all the way down to the man we looked at a few weeks ago named Josiah. And for, for decades, the people had been cut off from the word of God. And you remember the story of how Early on, early on, Josiah had determined he would seek the Lord. And after years of that, some years of that, when he was 26 years old or so, they discovered in the temple as he's restoring the nation to being God's people, they are restoring the temple and they discover a copy of the Word of God. And Josiah, as he hears it read, is just wiped out emotionally, spiritually, as he hears the Scripture. His heart is so tender. 
and he recognizes that judgment is coming, that there is a judgment coming, it cannot be stopped, and he cries out to the Lord, and, and they go searching for someone who can speak for God, and they find hold of the prophetess. You remember the story? And she speaks, and God says in so many words, because of the tenderness of your heart, Josiah, in your lifetime, this is not going to happen. It's still going to happen. And we saw how in his late 30s, Josiah, without inquiring of the Lord, without seeking the Lord, went into battle against an Egyptian king and was killed. There were about, I can't remember exactly, three or four kings that followed. All of them related to Josiah, all of them wicked. And in short succession, boom, 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 they were taken down. And finally in 605 B.C., at the very end of the 7th century, Judah was destroyed. And there were no more kingdoms in the promised land. They were gone. The policy of Nebuchadnezzar, who, who conquered those, his, these various kingdoms in his empire, his policy was to take the best, the brightest, the best-looking people and, and bring them in captivity back to Babylon. Among those were a group of young boys, the ones that we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a young man named Daniel. And it's very clear as we open up these pages, and we'll be more clear to you as we, we get through with this, this uh, message this morning, that God was doing something special through these men. Daniel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. He was a contemporary of Ezekiel. And yet God was doing something with these four young men that, were help, that would help set the stage for the recovery of, of the people of God while they were in captivity. They had fallen into captivity because of idolatry. And now we had four Hebrew sons who were being told to worship an idol. What would they do? So we see that the greatest trouble God has always had in the Bible is with his own people. The nations that reject him, they're never a problem. The ones he always has the greatest difficulty with over and over and over again are his own people. You see it all throughout the scripture. Adam and Eve, the people of Israel who wouldn't enter the promised land and they wound up wandering the wilderness for 40 years. You see the divided kingdoms and the continual fall into idolatry again and again and God seeking to recover a people for himself. You even see the Lord Jesus coming and the people of Jerusalem rejecting him, the people of Israel rejecting him. And all the way up to the book of Revelation, you read letters where God, even through his messengers, are speaking to the churches about necessary corrections that needed to be made even in the church of Jesus Christ. I have lived long enough that I've heard men over the years, not popular men, but I've heard men over the years say that our nation is in trouble. 
and we have heard that. Some of us, our entire lives, our entire spiritual lives, we have heard people say, our nation is in trouble, almost to the point where I think it goes in and it doesn't even register anymore. But if God is true to his word and the way that he normally deals with his people, I do not understand how this can continue indefinitely, what you and I are a part of, the church in North America. Jesus is coming back for a bride dressed in white. She will be pure and faithful to him. And I believe that as a church, we are headed into our own version of a Babylonian captivity. And it is in the context of losing freedom. It is in the context of losing privilege. It is in the context of losing influence and the moral high ground, or whatever you want to call it. It's in the context of losing those things that it will be absolutely impossible to sit on the fence and call yourself a Christian. And it's intensifying. Meanwhile, around the world, the church is exploding. The latest data that I've been able to read says that there are approximately 82,000 people a day are coming to faith in Jesus Christ around the world. 82,000 a day. That always stuns me when I read that. I go back and I pull that data every year and I look at that data and I'm amazed because when you do the math on that, that is more people coming to faith in Christ every hour of every day than came to Christ on the day of Pentecost. It's a Pentecost every hour of every day. You and I are living in that. But we're not conscious of that, are we? 93% of those people coming to Christ are coming to Christ outside of North America. 93%. Now, why is that? Because coming to faith in Christ outside of North America means something, costs something, is a risk. In a report released just this month by one of the watch groups that study persecution around the world, this report is called Total Denial, Violations of Freedom of Religion or Belief in North Korea. And this is a quotation from just the opening uh, summary, the executive summary in this report. It says, documented incidents against Christians, this is in North Korea, include being hung on a cross over a fire, being crushed under a steamroller, herded off bridges, and trampled underfoot. A policy of guilt by association applies, meaning that the relatives of Christians are also detained regardless of whether they share the Christian belief. Even North Koreans who have escaped to China and who are or become Christians are often forced to be repatriated and subsequently imprisoned in a political prison camp, and they will die in that camp. And their bodies will lie where they fall. 
around the world today, out of every five persons who are killed for religious reasons, four of them are Christians. You won't hear that in the mainstream media. You won't even hear that from our own government. And you and I are presently living in the largest English-speaking mission field on the planet. Right here. If you were to rank by sheer numbers of people who are understood to not know Christ and to be lost, the United States of America would rank fourth, approximately fourth in the world of all the nations. We have people from South Korea coming to this country as missionaries to reach people for Christ. We have people from other nations coming to this country to reach people for Christ. And that's happening in Western Europe. It's happening in Great Britain. It's happening in Germany. As other nations are sending missionaries to what used to be a Christian realm, supposedly, to share the gospel. I've shared with you before that Southern Baptist baptisms, our own evangelistic effectiveness, we hardly even say the word evangelism even more, anymore. That our own baptisms as Southern Baptists, that's what we're a part of, have declined eight of the past ten years. We have the lowest number of baptisms right now since the 1940s. Right now in a Southern Baptist church, it takes 52 Southern Baptists to reach one person for Christ. 52. Overall, and our membership has declined every year for the last nine years. Weekly attendance is dropping so fast that experts are telling pastors to plan on members coming less frequently. Just a plan on it. Among Arkansas Baptists, two out of three of our church members cannot be found in a church today. Two-thirds. The point is, is we are not prepared for a Babylonian captivity. And yet we know that God raises up people in the midst of those kinds of circumstances. He's done it before. I believe he would do it again. And that you and I need to be attentive to what he does. Like these young men here, God is at work preparing, doing something. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews, all of them. In verse 12, it says, There's, these men are speaking, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? I believe the average Christian in North America would fold up in the face of that kind of challenge. 
world. Unable to handle it. Could not stand against that kind of anger, that kind of fury, that kind of authority intimidating us. The Bible increasingly in churches is being discarded and being replaced by human opinion and reason. They're saying things such as the Bible's not the truth, the Bible's just a myth. It's been happening for decades. In the United Church of Christ, a very liberal denomination located primarily on the East Coast, they have had a 44% loss of members, about a million people, over the last 40 years. The Episcopal Church has lost 30% of their membership in that same time, over a million members. The PC, Presbyterian Church of the United States, PCUSA, has lost 60% of their membership. 60%, two and a half million people. And in these groups, for every one person they reach, they lose two. And yet these are the ones that have led the charge on redefining marriage because they thought it's what they had to do to reach young people. It was to champion sin. When you challenge the world, you're going to be different from the world. When you're devoted to God and not to the system that the enemy has set up, you will be perceived as a threat. So how did these young men respond? They didn't buckle. How did they respond to the hostility and the threats? In verse 16, the Bible says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. O Nebuchadnezzar, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And so they don't know what God's going to do, do they? They don't know. They don't know what the outcome's going to be. They know that God can deliver them and that whether they live or die in the fiery furnace, God will deliver them. They'll be set free from this world and all the hostility and hatred in this world. They'll go into the eternal arms of Jesus Christ. They know that their destiny is with God. They're not afraid to die. And so they're able to say, even if God doesn't deliver us, even if we die in the flames, Even at the very worst you can do, you bring it on us. Bring it, because we're not going to serve your gods. We're not going to do it. Listen, whenever God has brought his people into captivity, whenever there has been great distress, whether it's corrective judgment or remedial kind of judgment like we see in the Old Testament with the captivity, or whether it's an individual uh, trial or tribulation or test that's designed to prove the existence of your faith or deepen or purify your faith, no matter what the situation is. God always has a way for his man or his woman to respond to him in faith and with their whole heart. He always has a way, always. And when he brings a church 
into persecution, when he brings a church into their own experience of Babylonian captivity, God always is watching and raising up a man and a certain kind of woman that he can use for himself. Always. The question I have is, are you that kind of person? Are you the kind of person that God is going to use? When the dust settles and Jerusalem is leveled and the walls are torn down and the temple's gone and the buildings are gone and the programs are gone and the Sunday morning services are gone, will he still find you? Will he still be able to use you? How did these young men get this way? How did they become that kind of man? Or that kind of woman that God could use? Well, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 8. You have to go back to the beginning. Because just like Josiah, we saw with Josiah, there was a starting point where he began to seek the Lord when he was in a, a teenager. So we see where all this began. And we see in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, these four men have been ripped from their homes, ripped from their families, forced to work for a government that had oppressed and destroyed their own nation. And, and, and here they are now. They are virtually, they're in slavery and in bondage to this king. This king has taken these men and forced them to serve him. In verse 8 of Daniel 1, look at this very carefully. The Bible says, but Daniel purposed in his heart, look at that, Daniel purposed in his heart. I'm not exactly sure what your version may say, but whatever it says there, I would underline it or I would circle it. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, most likely either because it had pork in it, which was forbidden in the Old Testament dietary laws, or it was food that had been sacrificed to idols, which was probably the more likely reason. And because it had been sacrificed to idols before being given to them, he would not defile himself with that food. Nor with the wine which he drank, therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might defile, not defile himself. And this is where it all began. This is where it began. How did those three men get to a place that they could stand in the face of the most powerful man on the planet and say, I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do? It started here. You see, these, these boys, these young men, all of them were born about the time that Josiah discovered the law in the temple, about 621 B.C. All of these boys were born about that time. And if you remember the story of Josiah, there was a great movement back to God during Josiah's life. There were people that came back to God that took this law and they said, this is what pleases the Lord. This is what pleases the Lord. And they embraced it fully. And I believe that Daniel and his three companions, that these four guys had been raised in families that had embraced the Word of God. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, Daniel, the name Daniel means God is my judge. Daniel didn't give himself that name. His parents gave him that name. The man called Shadrach, his true name was Hananiah. And it means the Lord shows grace. The man called Meshach, his true name was Mishael, which means who is like God. 
the man called Abednego, his true name was Azariah, the Lord helps. And each of these young men had been named by their parents. We don't know anything about their families, but we know the names that they gave their boys were indicative of people who loved God with all their heart. And so they were raised in this environment where they were exposed to the Word of God and to the presence of God in the nation. And they loved Him. They loved Him. And they had been taken as captives out of their country, ripped from their families, placed in the service of this king, and then they had given them these names. Shadrach means under the command of Aku, the moon god. Meshach means who is like Aku, the moon god. Abednego means a servant of Nebo or Nabu, the god of learning. They took these men and, and tried to erase who and what they were. But they grew up in an environment where they had been exposed to the truth. The only way that Daniel could say that the king's food would defile his heart, would defile his life, was if he had been raised with teaching of the Word of God. It's the only way he could have been that sensitive to it. And so in verse 8 when it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself, it tells us the whole story. Now, we're talking about what God does when his people are brought into captivity and how he raises up a man for himself, raises up a woman for himself. And they are able to influence and lead the next generation out of this terrible period of oppression. Daniel lived all the way until they were released from captivity. He lived all the way up to that time. In um, some years ago, uh, I don't remember Valentine's Day or anniversary, anniversary, proposal anniversary. Okay, Gail and I celebrate our proposal anniversary every year, which occurs right after Christmas and on December 30th. And I gave her a silver heart a number of years ago. And I said, this heart represents my heart. And I gave her my heart. You're all supposed to go, oh. Take notes, men. Take notes. Okay. I gave her my heart. And, um, and you know, the, uh, the, the thing that happens here with Daniel is that before he ever had to take a stand, before he ever had to stand for God, before he ever had to face this opposition before any of that had ever happened. What had he done? He had given his heart to God, hadn't he? It says it here. He had purpose in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food. But that was before there was ever a confrontation, before there was ever any kind of difficulty, ever a problem, ever a challenge. And so listen to me. If you're young, do this now. If you're older, you haven't done it, do it now. Give your heart to God. Give your heart to God. You'll never be able to stand against what may come in our lifetime unless you give your heart to God. You'll not be able to stand in a classroom or a boardroom or, or in your neighborhood or with just a group of friends. You'll never be able to stand until you give your heart to God. Give your heart to God. Let Him be your ruling passion. Let Him be all that you most care about. Don't give pieces of your heart to other things. 
Give him all your heart, your whole heart. In the Old Testament, the concept of a pure heart was a heart that was undivided. It meant that all of the heart was present. All of the heart was given. All of the heart was available. In 1927, a revival came to the missionaries and the missionary institutions of North China in Shandong province. This was at a time where missionaries had been working and they had been serving and there was a very strong uh, Christian church, but at this point in northern China anyway, it was a very weak church. It was not a church that was very strong. The seminary had less than a dozen students. They, uh, the churches were, were weak. They were fighting and fussing all the time. They were, they were attacking their pastors. Pastors didn't understand much about the scripture, so there was doctrinal heresy that was running rampant. About 20 years earlier, there was a young Lutheran nurse, missionary nurse, named Marie Monson, who left Europe, and she went to North China to serve. And while she was there, she, she heard about a revival in Wales that I've talked about here before, where 100,000 people came to faith in Christ in a 10-month period of time. Among a population about the size of Arkansas, about 100,000 people came to faith in Christ. In our best year as Southern Baptists, we baptized 16,000 in 1950. Can you imagine 100,000 people coming to faith in Christ in Arkansas today? Well, she heard about that. And that revival went to different parts of the world, affected different parts of the world. Baptisms even in Arkansas went up 25, 30 percent from 1904 to 1906. It was just a global event. Revival came to Korea in 1907. Again, starting among Welsh Presbyterian missionaries and others, uh, ethnically Korean missionaries, revival broke out. And these dear ones were confessing sin. They were writing relationships. They were returning things they had stolen. That was the preachers. And little Marie Monson, this nurse, she heard about that. And she said, oh, God, I want to go to Korea. I want to see what it's like when you come among your people. I want to see what it's like when you manifest your presence among your people. I want to see what it's like to be in revival. And she began to pray, God, would you provide the funds so I can go? And she prayed for some time along those lines. And then finally, very clearly, God spoke to her heart. She wrote it down in her journal. I've, I've read it in her biography. She wrote it down in her journey, journal. She said, God told me that I'm not going to provide the money for you to go to Korea to see revival. But Marie, what I want you to do is I want you to pray that revival would come to North China. And if you will pray and ask me to come to North China... I will bring revival to North China. And she started praying in 1907, and she prayed until 1927, and God came to North China. Those little seminaries barely had a dozen students, suddenly had three and 400 students. Churches were filled and overflowing. The missionaries' lives were changed dramatically as they encountered the presence of God. And a whole generation of missionaries who eventually were expelled from China came back to the United States and they bore witness to the power and the presence of God to a generation of Southern Baptist pastors. Women like Bertha Smith, men like Charlie Culpepper, who just came back and told the story of what God had done. 
But you know what's most significant is so many people, their hearts, they gave their heart to God during that revival from about 1927 to 1932. That it started a fire in China that burns probably the most brightly in China compared to anywhere else in the world today. Of those 82,000 people coming to faith in Christ every day, about 25,000 of them are in China. If you go to the western provinces of uh, the eastern provinces of China on the ocean, the church is growing so rapidly, they're experiencing the greatest forms of persecution. For simply putting a cross on top of your building like we have, they're tearing down the whole building. And pastors are being jailed and people are being severely persecuted for their faith. They went through the invasion of China by the Japanese in the late 1930s. They went through the communist era of the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s where every effort was made to absolutely decimate the church and eradicate the church in China. The church in China is stronger today than ever before. When did it begin? It began when God touched their hearts in such a way that they gave their hearts to God. They gave their heart to God. It is so important that you and I always start there. God is not asking you to do things for Him. He doesn't need you to do things for Him. He made the heavens and the universe. He made the stars in the sky. He doesn't need your help. But He wants your heart, and He wants to work through you, and He wants to use you. And that's what He was doing with these young men. They made their heart a sacred place where only God could dwell, a heart that belonged to God and where only God could live. And so when they encountered difficulties, when they encountered challenges, when they encountered things that were embarrassing to admit, yeah, I'm a follower of Jehovah, I'm a follower of Yahweh, yeah, I don't eat those things, I'm sorry, and they were kind of embarrassed. No, no excuses, no exceptions. We don't eat that stuff. We don't worship those gods. Why? Because their whole heart belonged to him. Now, a pure heart will tell the rest of the story in these chapters of Daniel. A pure heart influences others. I'm just going to make reference to it because um, we need to, we need to uh, keep moving through this, but a pure heart influences others. In verses 9 to 13 of chapter 1, the Bible tells us that Daniel found favor with the chief of the eunuchs who was overseeing all of these boys. These men were in a three-year program to be made ready to serve as officials in Nebuchadnezzar's empire. And instead of eating the king's delicacies and defiling himself, Daniel and these other three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these other three men, they came up with a plan and they said, look, they said, we can't eat this stuff. And the guy said, look, I like you. In fact, what's really significant, it says that God had given them favor with the, the guy in charge. God had given them favor. They had won him over. They, had, they were influencing him. They were winning his heart. And they said, look, just try it our way for 10 days. Try it for 10 days. Let us eat anything except that. Let us eat just normal stuff, the vegetables and water and stuff. We're not going to drink the wine. We're going to eat the king's delicacies and then compare us to the people who have been eating that other thing. And what did they discover? Well, they discovered that these boys looked better, thought better, played better, worked harder than all the other, than all the other guys. 
You know, there's a difference between the way that you and I react to laws and legislation and commands that allow sin. There are things that are happening in our country that permit sin, that allow sin. But it's very different when you and I begin to encounter laws that require us to sin. In order to keep the law, we would be required to sin. And that time is coming. But in the face of this, at this moment, it was not one of those moments. And so they, they appealed to this guy. They, they came up with an alternative. They said, look, we, we want to ask you to consider this other way. This is God's way. This is God's approach. We want you to try it. And uh, it worked. And they weren't arrogant. And they were responsive. They were obedient. They won the respect and the honor of the people who were in charge. A pure heart is influential on others. Even in the most hostile world, over and over again, we have seen the people of God win the hearts of the ungodly just because of their grace and their love and their compassion and their generous spirit. A pure heart also calls on God. When you get to Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this amazing dream, and he wants his wise men to interpret it. One hitch. He won't tell them what the dream is. He says, I know that if you interpret it, you can say whatever you want. But if I don't tell you what the dream is, you have to tell me what the dream is and what it means. And if you don't, I'm going to lop your heads off. I mean, you're all going to die. And Daniel and the three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were right in the mix. So what did they do? In chapter 2, it says, Daniel came back to those three men. He said, guys, we need to cry out to God. We need to ask God for his mercies. Because only God can do this. Only God can do this. And, and it says that God revealed to Daniel the dream and the interpretation. He goes to the king and he tells it to him. He says, I want you to know it's not me that's doing this. God is doing this. The one true God that I serve, he's, he's the one telling you this dream and this interpretation. But people with a pure heart, people who've given their heart to God, they call on God. They cry out to God. I heard somebody recently say, if you want to know how popular a church is, go there on Sunday morning. If you want to know how popular a pastor is, go there on Sunday night. I'm not sure that's true, but that's what they said. They said, if you want to know how popular God is, go to the prayer meeting. And people with a pure heart, people who have given their heart to God, they cry out to Him when trouble comes. They call on Him. And so we come down to verse 19 of chapter 3. It says, Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. An expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He got so angry, he says he, he had them fire up that furnace to where it was seven times hotter than it had ever been before. As the story unfolds, they grabbed those men, they bound them up, they tied them up with their clothes, their turbans, their robes, their pants, everything they had, they tied them up, and they had these strong, mighty men take them and throw them into the fiery furnace. The men that threw them into the furnace dropped dead from the heat. The Bible goes on and it says that, verse 24, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? 
They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, not three, four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. He didn't know who that fourth man was, but he knew there was something divine about him, something supernatural about this fourth man. There comes a time where ultimately you may be called on, I may be called on to suffer by standing for what is right. And we may find ourselves in the very same position as those three young men where we say, you know, God can deliver us. He's able. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to serve your God. I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. We're not going there. Well, the end of the story, verse 27, all the leadership got around. They looked at these guys. Their clothes were not singed. Their hair was not singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. I mean, just completely untouched by the fire and the completely untouched. The only thing that had burned off were their bonds. The ropes that had held them were gone. Everything else was, was fine, untouched. And so they were immediately, they were protected by the king. He acknowledged the one true God that they served. They were promoted by the king. Some people believe Nebuchadnezzar became a follower of Yahweh after this. I'm not so sure. But dear ones, I believe testing is coming. And testing is coming for a weak church or a strong church. It doesn't matter, but testing is coming. Is your heart a sacred place? Is your heart a sacred place belonging to him alone? I don't know when the test is going to come. It may affect the whole church. It may just affect one family. It may affect multiple families. We're seeing it all the time right now at Wynn Baptist. One day, one week, you're planning one thing, and the very next, your whole schedule's changed because of something that's happened in your family or in your home or in your neighborhood, your community. Dear ones, do not wait for that moment to try to figure out where your heart lies in relationship to God. The time to prepare for that moment is now. Is now. If you're going to experience walking with God through the fire, give Him your heart now. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. Thank you for your attentiveness. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, in just a moment we're going to stand and sing and give you an opportunity to publicly and without hesitation to put your trust in Jesus Christ. I'll be at the front. There'll be other pastors at the front. And dear ones, we're only here to counsel with you, to pray with you, to encourage you, to answer questions that you might have. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross so that your sins could be carried away forever and so that you might enter into eternity and fellowship with the Father forever. But he didn't only die on the cross to save you from your sins, he also died on the cross to change your life from the inside out. And he comes today, if you put your trust in him, he comes to come inside you, to dwell inside you. And to change you. 
And brother, sister, I can't tell you what the condition of your heart is. But I'm making an appeal to you as your pastor and as your brother. For the first time, or for the 2,000th time, it doesn't matter. Would you give your heart fully to him? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of a church family where we hold your word in high esteem because it comes from you. And we want to hear your voice. We want to hear your voice every week, every day. And we know you speak through your word. Father, for that one who's here today, this message was for them. They know it. They heard you. You've been speaking to them. Father, I pray you would defeat all that the enemy has done to confuse that dear one. That you would set him free or set her free this very moment so that they can give their heart fully to you. Let there be no barriers. Let there be no hindrances. Come among us as the king that you are, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.